two, three, fuck it. My darling, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I Say it again. Life moves pretty fast. It's not about personality matrixels and charts. It's all about the bumps in your heart. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to find out more about this project, you can do so at the podcast website, lastborninthewilderness.com. A link to that site will be in the description of this episode. By going to that site, you will find everything that you would ever need to know about this project. You will find contact information. If you want to send me a line, you can do so through the link on that site. You will also find the YouTube page, the various sites that this podcast is now on, that it is streaming from. Those sites include SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, as well as Stitcher. If any of those are your preferred places to subscribe to podcasts, please consider subscribing to this podcast on any of those platforms also you will find a link to the one-time donation page if you want to send me just a a tip like you would with a barista or uh, a server at a restaurant you want to give me just a little tip to keep things going you can do so through that you can also find a link to the patreon page and by going to patreon.com slash last born the wilderness you can make very small monthly contributions to the production of this podcast. You can do as little as a dollar a month. And by donating that to the production of this podcast, you will gain early access to the content of these episodes a week in advance. And you'll also find other extras um, on that uh, page as well. Without any further delay, on with the episode. Thank you. In this episode, I speak with Ian McGilchrist. Ian is a psychiatrist and the author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. In this conversation or interview, whatever you want to call it, I ask Ian to go over some of the ideas that are brought up in his really excellent book on the subject, of course, of of what the two hemispheres of our brains, the left and right hemisphere, and what kind of experiments have been done and what kind of research has been done into the evolution, the evolutionary 
uh, functions of, of both sides of these of our brain of the left and the right hemisphere and how the the values that come from say the left hemisphere versus the right hemisphere and how an emphasis on say left brain thinking has led to the development of the western world led to the development of western culture and the western worldview and how this imbalance between the left and right brain thinking in our culture in western culture more broadly has led to many of the various crises and problems and unsolvable issues that we have ultimately wrought in these past few thousand years and how we have reached a point where we really need to be asking some very deep questions about how we have gotten to where we are today you know and and and, and what i mean by that of course is politically also the institutions that we have built with governments with our economic system as well as as well as what is happening on our planet in regards to climate change and ecological devastation, ecological crisis that is currently unfolding, and how this fits into his his research into the the hemispheres of the brain and how we have evolved and how our culture ultimately has evolved out of this particular view of of the brain. Ian is he's such a warm and loving. I could just tell by talking to him that he is such a compassionate and very deep thinker. He really cares about where we are. And and he really, I think, when he wrote this book, what he was trying to do is try to figure out a way for people to understand why we think the way that we do and why this form of thinking that we have cultivated in our society has led us to the problems that we are currently experiencing in our modern time. So without taking too much away from this conversation, I just want to direct you towards his website, ianmcgilchrist.com. His name is spelled I-A-I-N. McGilchrist is spelled M-C-G-I-L-C-H-R-I-S-T. That is ianmcgilchrist.com. You can find everything you need to know about his work through that site. He's being featured in a few different documentaries, one of them being The Divided Brain which is a documentary on his work. So look out for that. And he's also working on a book right now, which he, I think he said at the end of this interview, he's hoping to have released or at least finished by the end of, I think this year or next year. The name of that book is There Are No Things. And on his website, it says it is a book of epistemology and metaphysics. Ian's got some good things coming down the pipe. And I think also his, his book the master and his emissaries is so worth looking into. He has done some amazing talks, amazing lectures as well. You should definitely all go check him out on YouTube. And um, I think you can also find a lot of those, those videos and those lectures on his website. So please go check out Ian's work. And thank you so much for your attention up to this point. Without any further delay on my part, here's my conversation with Ian McGilchrist. Thank you. I just think it's incredibly fascinating that there is such a thing as the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of a brain, and that these two seemingly very different, uh, I mean, they're part of the same whole, but they, they perceive reality quite differently, and how those two hemispheres have, through evolution, essentially, found ways to, to really benefit one another and create a balance. At least that's the idea, right? That's that's the hopefully the goal of all of it. Um 
And so, so I guess my first question would be to, to have you sort of break that down a bit. You know, what are the functions of, say, the left hemisphere versus the right hemisphere? And ultimately, how do these two hemispheres come together in order to create the reality that we all perceive? Yes. Uh, okay. I mean, the first thing that I ought to say is that um, most people's immediate reaction will be, oh, it's all based on uh, pop science and it's all been shown to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> that that seems to be a fairly uh, common uh, uh, prejudice. Uh, it's not without some foundation in that a lot of nonsense has been talked about the topic over the years. Um, but I just want people to put out of their minds all the things that they think they might know about the differences because they're all pretty much wrong. <laughs> okay. So, um, but you ask a very good question, which is, you know, why should there be a divide in the brain since the brain is uh, entirely made of connections of neurons? The more connections it makes, um, the more power on the face of it it has. And so um, it's rather hard to see why why it should be divided. Mm. Um, it might surprise people to know that actually uh, there is very little connection at all between the two hemispheres in the case of most animals uh, other than humans and, um, well, mammals in general. Um, the, the, there is a, a band of fibers that connects the two halves of the brain called the corpus callosum. But that is actually a mammalian invention. Um, the rest of living things get on without uh, such a connection. Mm. It doesn't mean to say there isn't any connection, but broadly speaking, they they don't have have much in the way of a connection. So there is something important there. And um, oddly enough, the corpus callosum in humans is actually mainly involved in inhibiting things, which means that um, it's, it's it's not even connecting very much. It's it's more about, you know, keeping things separate. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's a puzzle as to why we should have these two, uh, two halves of the brain that function um, together, of course, but, but do different things and, and why we should have evolved in this way. And to me, the most compelling argument, and I don't know of any better one, is that all living things have to solve a conundrum, which is how to eat and stay alive at the same time, which may not sound difficult to us nowadays. But if you're, if you imagine yourself to be a bird or an animal that's focusing on getting something to eat it, they have to have a very narrowly focused uh, attention to that detail that they're trying to get hold of. But if that's all they're attending to, they will not see the predator that is waiting to make them into a lunch while they're trying to find their own. So we need to be able to pay two different kinds of attention to the world at once. One is very sharply focused and latched onto a detail in order to grab it and get hold of it and manipulate it. Might be a twig to build a nest or might be a piece of food or it might be trying to catch your prey, but that's the purpose. And with the other half of the brain, um, to be keeping a good lookout for everything else that's going on. Now, in uh, human beings, and there is a tendency in most animals for this to be the case, 
Um, it's the left hemisphere that provides this rather narrowly focused attention to one little bit at a time, and the right hemisphere that pays a sort of sustained open attention, which keeps the world together. I mean, the perceptual experienced world, it holds it together while the left hemisphere is uh, hopping around from one detail to the next. So that's a quite important basic difference. Right. So in, in human beings in particular, um, you described the connections that are that are made. Uh, ultimately, that I, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget the name of that, uh, that connective, uh, that connective part. Corpus callosum. Corpus callosum? The, the corpus. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Um, that the function of this is actually to inhibit both uh, sides of the these hemispheres. Why would that be the well, case? Yeah, well, it, it is in humans very largely inhibitory. Um, it isn't all the way down, as it were, in the in the evolutionary tree. It started off uh, as a way of of obviously connecting the two hemispheres to uh, enable gaze pursuit across the mid middle of the field of vision. Um, but uh, in fact, with time, for reasons that um, probably too complex to go into now, but uh, mm. it has become more and more inhibitory. Uh, one way of thinking about it is that if you've got a very complicated organization, it doesn't make life easier if all of the departments are communicating everything they're doing all the time. It's better if they have defined roles and they get on with those and they communicate merely on a need to know basis. Mm. So if you like, the, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere need to be allowed to get on with the sort of attention to the world that they, they're good at paying without the other one constantly um, intruding. Right. Uh, of course, there's a, there's, a, there's a happy medium to this. They need to know what's going on but they mustn't, as it were, get in one another's way. It's a bit like, um, you know, people say, well, they're always working at the same time. Yes, sure, they are. But, you know, you think of a, an operation. There's got to be a surgeon and there's got to be a scrub nurse. And it, 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 they have different roles, but they're operating on the same thing at the same time. Mm. And it doesn't make it better if the scrub nurse tries to make the incision or the, inc the, the surgeon <laughs> drops his scalpel and, and tries to um, do the job of the nurse. So they, yeah. they've got to have different roles. Okay, yeah. of course. Um, so... Uh, you know, kind of looking at it as we are now, I mean, human beings, at least for, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of years we've had, you know, concepts like culture, we have civilizations that become rather complex over time. Um, and we have art, we have music, we have all of these really creative expressions um, that come out of culture and out of civilization. Um, maybe not civilization itself, but, you know, it, it can create a context for these things to emerge. Um, how does the evolution of the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere in the human brain play into this? Because uh, at this point, I mean, I think that survival is seems to come secondary at this point. It's not as, you know, we're not as worried about hunting for our food anymore. Um, you know, I can go to the grocery store or to a restaurant now to get, you know, to take care of that, that issue. And that yeah. may not always be the case for many human beings, but for, yeah. for a lot of people in the Western world in particular, that seems to be the case. So 
how yeah. has the, the 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 evolutionary purposes of these two hemispheres and how they work together uh, manifested into the modern world that we're all a part of today? Yes. Well, of course, uh, as you say, we, we we all inherit these things from our ancient past, but they have new ways of of being co-opted by human beings. One is the way in which we are able to go offline, if you like, a stand back from the immediacy of experience and, uh, for example, imagine how things might work out if I do this or if I do that, which will be the better plan? Mm. Um, what is that person going to think if I say this? What are they going to think if I say that? So a lot of stuff that's going on, which is, if you like, trying things out theoretically in an abstract realm. Um, mm. that's, that's something we're able to do because of the development of the frontal lobes of, of both hemispheres. But it's something that means that it's very helpful if we can spend some of our time in, in more abstract thinking. And when you get to the, the great apes, and finally to, to, or not finally, but next anyway <laughs> to us, yeah. you, um, you find that, that, that one of the things that distinguishes us is our ability to, to think conceptually. Now that, that may sound therefore like that's the smartest thing we do, but it may not be at all. We need to take back what we have thought conceptually into the real world and know how to apply it. Uh, many of the problems of modern economics have come from some clever uh, people having dreamt up a model somewhere that works on a computer in a lab, but actually is not anything like complex enough to deal with real life. Now, if you think about the hemispheres in relation to this, to, to make it all more simple, I'm going to make a lot of simplifications in what I say, but if, okay. if, I, if I didn't, we wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to say anything clearly. So <laughs> generally, the left hemisphere is that place in which things are more abstract. It's a bit more like a map. Um, if you imagine you're waging a campaign of war, then it's useful to have a map, but you don't want too much detail about what's really going on out there. You just need the essentials so that you can see the picture. And the left hemisphere is good at doing that, but it's not very good at actually knowing much about, as it were, the world that's represented on the map. That's the right hemisphere's strong suit. It's much better at understanding the world as we live it in flesh and blood from day to day, which is a massively complicated thing by comparison with the abstractions that are dreamt up in the left hemisphere. So although people talk about, you know, I'm going to say something now I'm going to regret, but people, <laughs> uh, people liken the brain to a computer. And I just think that's such a terrible image. It's, it, 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 it leaves out pretty much everything of importance. So I'm not saying the brain is like a computer, right. but in one respect, the left hemisphere is a little bit like our own personal computer. When you put stuff into a computer, you know, roughly speaking, where it comes from in the real world and what it represents. And the machine then carries out some procedures without having to have the least understanding of what it's doing. Then at the end, the data come out and once more you interpret what you found in terms of the real world. Well, you could think of the relationship between the hemispheres a little like that. The right hemisphere 
literally seems to be the one that has the first take on things when they're new. Once the things begin to get a bit more familiar, they get processed by the left hemisphere. It says, oh, I see, it's one of those. I can put it into that category. I can manipulate it in this way. But it doesn't actually really understand as well as the right hemisphere does the whole picture. So whatever it's doing is uh, a rather thin version. And the problem with it is only when we mistake the map for the territory, when we think that the map we've got is what really happens in the world. Now, unfortunately, in the modern world, we do this a lot. I mentioned economic models, mm. largely because several Nobel Prize winning economists have got egg all over their face because they said things like, oh, we've worked it all out. Now there will never be a crash. So uh, <laughs> and then thing crashes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, clever people do things like go into Iraq in order to secure world peace and curiously end up disseminating chaos and and resentment. <laughs> yeah. So the things that good on a piece of paper are not always the things that work well in a very complex world. And unfortunately, we're more and more driven by rather simple algorithmic abstract models that could be run on a computer, some of them very sophisticated, but nonetheless, for all that sophistication, only getting a fraction of 1% of what is needed in order to understand a real human situation. And for that, we need you know, a fully developed, experienced, relatively wise human mind. And that is that is something we're leaving out of the equation more and more these days. We're concentrating on on uh, procedures, on bureaucracy, on uh, algorithms, sets of rules. Um, we've got an obsession with control. Um, we, we try to put things into boxes that won't go into boxes. We seem to have lost the sense of uniqueness, the sense of value for things in their embodied being in the world. And so we are moving more and more in, in, in brief, in my view, into a world where the left hemisphere calls all the shots mm. and we're neglecting a sort of embodied wisdom that the right hemisphere could help us see. Yeah. You know, when you talked about... Um the computer and, and algorithms. It reminded me of a conversation I had with a gentleman named David O'Hara, who's a professor um, out of Augustana University, and he talks about philosophy and um, and, and particularly the kind of the, the ethics of robotics and artificial intelligence and machine learning in particular. Yeah. And, and one thing we were discussing was how there's all of this emphasis being put on how we can let algorithms take over a lot of, of the functions of society um, machine learning can take control of, say, uh, cars and how we drive, you know, like self-driving cars. Um, and we're going to start seeing this more and more, of course, as time goes on. We see it in uh, social media. We see it in surveillance, in, the st in state surveillance. Um, we see it all, all over the place. We start to see that sort of logic of, of, of very, of computer thinking um, seep into to much of our lives. Um, and and ultimately, what, what David was very concerned with is that, you know, we are putting so much emphasis and we, we have this, this belief that somehow computers are, are pretty much like the brain, except they just haven't got to the point yet where we can say that they're like a brain. But eventually, the, a computer will, will be so advanced, we'll have artificial intelligence and essentially consciousness can exist within 
a computer in some fashion. Um, but but that just seems more and more like a delusion, I think, as time goes on. Um, so maybe to draw this into a question, and, and maybe I'll, I'll tie this actually into the title of your book. The the a subtitle of your book is The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And that part at the end, Making of the Western World, is incredibly fascinating to me. Because as you described, you know, we're focusing so much on, we, we don't have this holistic view of reality. And we're, we're emphasizing so much of, I think you said, the left hemisphere uh, uh, thinking. And so my, my question to you is like, in your view, how did we get to this point? I mean, it wasn't like this happened overnight, obviously. And, and I don't think that anybody had any real idea even of what was happening over time. But it does seem that the Western world started leaning in this direction more and more and more until we've gotten to this point now where all of these very seemingly clever people, like you mentioned, I mean, these are Nobel Prize winning economists, are unable to understand that their models that they have created for for world economies or national economies are 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 not getting a real full picture of the complexity of the situation and they have egg on their face as a result. I mean, how did the Western world get to this point? How did we evolve to this level of of so much left to left <laughs> well, hemisphere? I know that's a really like I know that you, question you, is you, ridiculous. You break, yeah. You you've already raised about four different really important points and each of them would <laughs> would be enough for a day discussion. But yeah. Um yeah, um, let me let me just think first of all about what you were saying about artificial intelligence. Yeah, um, I mean, one one of the things there is, uh, I think we're just beginning to see how uh, how much machines uh, can't do. Uh, the the big enthusiasm for them is beginning to run into problems, even doing such simple things as building cars. Um, when you think about making policy or anything like that, never mind um, understanding a human tragedy, uh, no, there's no way you, <laughs> machines are going to get there. Mm -hmm. You say there might be consciousness arising in machines. We don't know that at all. I mean, that's, of course, a whole uh, other topic, but I'm right. deeply skeptical that consciousness yeah. is something that just arises out of lots of connections. For example, I mean, just uh, one little example, uh, in fact, there are more neuronal connections in your cerebellum than there are in your cerebrum. The cerebrum is the is the new brain, the bit that we think of mainly as our brain. Um, the cerebellum is the so-called sort of ancient brain at the back of the head, below the the um, the level of of the of the, um, the brain. But it has uh, actually more uh, neuroconnections even than the than the, the, the neocortex, and yet it doesn't sustain consciousness on its own it is absolutely hopeless i mean uh, you need your <laughs> the rest of your brain for consciousness so we don't we don't know that at all mm -hmm. um, and and until um, i mean <laughs> intelligence is not just something that comes from crunching numbers it comes from experience having a body uh, much of what we do in intelligence is actually intuited um, and uh, even mathematicians and great scientists describe a lot of their uh, discoveries as being intuitive 
uh, uh, I mean, that's much commoner than them actually arriving at them by following out any sequence of, of um, steps. Uh, and I know you can say, well, we could train machines to get more like that and so on. Yeah, you can get more and more like, but you can make a lifelike model that can move like a woman and look like a woman and talk like a woman and even smile like a woman, but it still isn't a woman. So, mm -hmm. I mean, let's, let's clear that one for a start. Yeah. Um, in terms of how we got where the hell we are, um, <laughs> you write say that you know the subtitle of the book is the divided brain and the making of the western world and perhaps i should just briefly explain that the book falls into roughly two halves in the first half i look at the neurology and the neuropsychology and philosophical implications of this business of the brain being divided and in the second half of the book i look at the history of the west through the lens of what can we see if we think about it in terms of having to balance what each hemisphere offers to us. And there are, I would say, three, and most people would agree with this, three large uh, curves in the history of the Western civilization. One leaves Egypt out of it for the moment, um, <clears throat> partly because I don't know enough about Egypt. I started with ancient Greece. And then there is the civilization of Rome. And then there is uh, our modern civilization beginning at the Renaissance. And in each case, I think I can discern the same shape, which is that initially what we find is the thinking of the left hemisphere being well uh, combined in such a way as to produce a great efflorescence of learning and 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 knowing of things in every realm in science in the arts in lawmaking in in philosophy each time these things have started off with a huge flourishing of of everything across the board and then over time there has been a tendency for that civilization as it decayed to get more and more stuck into what I identify as the typical left hemisphere's way of thinking, um, uh, hierarchical, bureaucratic, abstracted. And one of the reasons I think is that in each case of these three civilizations, uh, what happens is it flourishes and then it overreaches itself militarily or um, in terms of having an empire, be that a commercial empire or an administrative empire or whatever. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think you can see this in, in the case of Greece, you can see it in the case of Rome, and you can see it in, in the case of the West since the 19th century. And the left hemisphere's way of thinking helps you to administrate an empire. It helps you to run a military on a big scale. It helps you grab resources. It helps you make uh, machines, it helps you become wealthy. Uh, it is the driver behind grabbing. The left hemisphere controls the right hand with which we grasp things. It also controls the bits of language with which we say, oh, I've, I've grasped it. In other words, I've sort of got that and put it in my in my box of things that I now understand. Mm -hmm. So the left hemisphere is the one that helps us not get smart, but get rich mm. um, in short run. But it's not very bright. And long run, it misses. <laughs> you need that balance. And the trouble is that 
the right hemisphere knows that it needs what the left hemisphere can provide, provided that stuff is taken back by it and used to, you know, to to flesh out the full picture. But the, unfortunately, the left hemisphere doesn't seem to know uh, what it is it doesn't know. It doesn't know that it needs. And that's where the the first part of the title of my book. The idea there is um, of a, a, a fable, which is a little bit like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, if you know that one. Um, but in any case, there is a, a, a wise spiritual master who looks after a small community in such a way that it flourishes and grows. And after a while, he realizes that he can't look after everything himself. But not only that, much more importantly, he realizes that he must not get involved with certain things if he is to preserve his ability to oversee the whole. So he delegates, and he delegates to his brightest and best to go about on his behalf and do certain um, more, more administrative procedural things. Um, rather like the way we treat our computers now. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, this emissary, bright as he is, is not bright enough to know that he doesn't know very much and that he doesn't know half as much as the master knows. And he goes around thinking, you know, I'm the one here who does all the heavy lifting. I'm the one that understands everything. What does he know? Um, and he pretends to be the master tends to do more than he should. And as a result, um, the community falls into ruin and, and it's the end of the master and the emissary. Now, my message there to the West is that we need very rapidly to remember things we've forgotten that used to be instinctual to us. Um, they involve a bit of humility, uh, but they're very necessary things to remember and uh, that we don't actually understand everything, that controlling things is not necessarily um, always wise. We don't know what it is we're doing when we start interfering. Um, and I'm not saying we, we shouldn't, of course. We, human beings are such that they do change and control their environment. It's part of being human. But we have to be careful. We have to listen and think about the things that at the moment we're neglecting. Yeah. You know, when uh, my uh, my next question, I guess, is, is, is understanding Western culture and how it evolved and how we've gotten to this point that we are today. Um, have you done any research into other cultures that maybe haven't taken this path that have maybe found a, a really good balance between these two perspectives, the two hemispheres perspectives, and have developed cultures and societies that live, say, more in balance and in more connection with, say, the natural world or the local the ecology that they're, say, closest to or near. Uh, partly what, what comes to my mind are, um, I know that we tend, I, I can tend to over-romanticize, um, say, indigenous cultures, but um, from what I understand, uh, that here within the, the continental U.S., there are certain indigenous uh, tribes, indigenous groups of human beings that have been very well adapted to their local ecology, their local land. And what they've, they've done is, like you said, human beings are very capable and very good at manipulating their environments. But with, of course, being mindful that they are part of a greater whole, that they're not just going to 
take what they want from the uh, their their local environment without understanding the consequences of doing so for the, all the other living things and all the systems that they inevitably are going to affect um, as a result of that. Precisely. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, I remember reading, and I wish I could remember the details, and I feel bad that I can't remember the details right now, but there were certain indigenous cultures that what they would do is they had very controlled fires that they would set in the grasslands here. I think it was in the Midwest. And as a result, the local ecology, the, the, the local ecosystems flourished as a result. You know, you saw more wildlife was able to graze. Yeah. You know, the forests that existed were able to thrive. Um, overall, human beings had a very beneficial Although it was manipulating the environment, it was a very beneficial manipulation for all the players involved. And we still want to manipulate our environments, but we seem to have lost that greater perspective, that bigger whole. Um, so my, my, I guess the question before I started rambling <laughs> right there um, was, <laughs> in, in your research, did you ever feel or ever did you ever compare other developed cultures with, with Western culture, Western points of view? Um, more generally yes um, I, I did and at the end of the book I, I make some very small um, suggestions from what I've uh, learned from others about oriental uh, by which I mean far eastern cultures like China, Japan and Korea mm. um, which has always fascinated me all my life uh, partly because my grandfather lived in Japan before the first world war and when I was growing up he used to tell me very amazing things about the cultures. And I, I became fascinated very young. Um, and I'm very broadly sympathetic to uh, Taoism and Zen Buddhism and to the paradoxical way of thinking of um, those cultures. But I also remember years and years ago reading a book by Reichert, Navajo Religion, since you're talking about uh, uh, North America. And um, I found extraordinary resonances there with the thinking I had at the time. This was before I, I trained in medicine and uh, uh, went into neuropsychiatry. Uh, and also I've been involved in making a film um, which is coming out on DVD, uh, I believe, any week now, like next week, I think. Um, <laughs> so it's an entirely uh, unplanned piece of uh, <laughs> um, advertising. But um, there's an... Laura called Bruce Parry, who um, is quite well known for um, a, a series he made called Tribe, in which he lived with a, an Amazonian tribe for six months. But he, he, in any case, made a film called Tawai, T-A-W-A-I, A Voice from the Forest. And um, I, I take part in that film in a small way. And he's looking there at exactly what you're saying about the harmony that exists between the natural world and the way of life of indigenous people. Uh, some of them hunter-gatherers, um, but some of them like um, uh, uh, Indians in, uh, in, in, um, you know, in, in the Indian subcontinent, not, not hunter-gatherers, but still nonetheless having a completely different philosophy of the way in which we relate to the rest. You know, to, I, I don't want to just say trees and plants, but the whole of the natural world and indeed the cosmos. So that is left out of our of our way of thinking. And you're absolutely right. That is uh, essential. And one of the things that um, 
uh, I would like to do. I mean, when, when I started studying medicine, one of the other things I, I thought of doing was actually learning Chinese, but <laughs> I can't do everything. And, and that one's <laughs> rather gone by, by, the, by the wayside. But I have read it, uh, quite a lot around that culture. And in making another film, which is a film called The Divided Brain, about my work, I went to see uh, Joe Henrich at Harvard, who's an anthropologist. And he was saying to me, you know, because I, I was saying, you know, it's really like the West and the rest, because it's not just, as it were, the Chinese. It's everybody except modern Westerners sees the world in a totally different way. And he said... You're absolutely right. And that when we were in, as it were, South America or Africa or whatever, our constant refrain was, they're more Chinese than the Chinese. In other words, <laughs> there, there is a, a way of thinking that has grown out of the wisdom of ancient cultures that have lived in harmony with the natural world on the whole for very long periods. And we alone stand out as this know-it-all culture that probably will go down in history as the most foolish, <laughs> if there is any history after us to record it, um, the, the most foolish, arrogant, self-destructive and uh, least uh, wise culture that, you know, that there has been. So I, I do feel we're, we're, you know, we're at a, a, a point, a decision point, or maybe past the decision point, but there's always hope, you know, that we really do need radically to shift um, the way we think about what a human being is, not just a machine or a computer at all, what it is to live together, um, what it is to live with nature. We have no idea, in fact, what the natural world is. And, you know, all our reductive ideas about it uh, approximate it to some kind of a mechanism. Mm. And it, it take it from me, and I'm writing a, a book about this at the moment, it doesn't work anything like any mechanism that you know. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the metaphor of the computer for the brain just doesn't seem to match, at least for me, and I think for many people now, it's becoming apparent that, that they're not the same by any means. Um, you know, and something that I've been so fascinated with in everything you're saying is, you know, the Western world stands apart from practically every other civilization, every other culture that has emerged on this planet that 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 maybe currently exists right now, but that you know we we t I guess what what I'm trying to maybe try to articulate in in my own uh, kind of bumbling way is something that I've been so perplexed by, and and I think partly why I was attracted to your work is my ongoing interest with how is it that the West developed the way that it did? I mean, it, it, I, I know there's no simple answers, and I understand that you've you've gone over that a little bit already, but it just so is so perplexing because I think what frustrates me the most is that, like you had stated, and something that I'm very, um, very much aware of, is that we are at a very cru crucial moment where if uh, very if if certain decisions aren't made correctly or certain directions aren't taken then, I mean, we're going off the edge of a cliff in more ways than one. Absolutely. And it's absolutely frightening and frustrating and 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 perplexing and confusing. It's all of these things at once. And and so 
I think trying for me at least it, it feels a bit like a puzzle. Maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but it feels like I'm trying to put all these pieces together, trying to understand how we got to this point, and then by somehow understanding that, maybe we could figure out how to change direction or develop something that is better than what we currently have today. Um, I don't know if that is yeah. maybe the wrong way to even look at it, but that is certainly something that has been been plaguing me, I guess if I could use that word, plaguing me for some time now is like, how did we get to this point and how can we possibly change directions? You know? Um, yeah, I'll just leave it there for you. <laughs> well, yeah, the Greeks had a concept of hubris, you know, which means a kind of arrogant pride in what you think you can do, which leads to your downfall. Um, it's the story of most tragedies, and the West is a tragedy. Um, it had high hopes, but it was just unfortunately too overconfident in what it thought it could get away with. Mm. Um, there's a lot that we can be proud of in Western culture, but <clears throat> from really 2,000 years ago, we started the rot of... Um, believing that uh, we could we could order everything in certain rationalistic ways that would um, you know lead to um, a freer and better and happier society and you know there's a lot in some of those aspirations and some of them have indeed borne fruit of course um, the trouble is that once you're intoxicated with this kind of thing you can't see when to stop and human beings don't understand exponential growth. Mm. That is really one of the most serious problems with the human mind. We don't understand how fast we're approaching what you're calling the edge of a cliff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, a, it's an old, well-worn image, but I'll give it again. If you have a, a colony of bacteria and they have a a doubling rate of, of a minute or whatever it is. They, in other words, each bacterium can divide um, once a minute. And you put one bacterium in this. If you come back an hour later and find the bottle is full and it's 12 o'clock, when was it half full? Mm. The answer is 11.59. <laughs> and what at what point would a bacterium in that jar have thought, whoa, we're running out of space? At two minutes to 12, only a quarter of the jar would be full. At three minutes to 12, only an eighth of the jar would be full. You know? Yeah. Where at that point, looking around, you'd go, oh, it's no problem at all. And <laughs> then suddenly. Now, if you look at the graphs of what we've done to resources, um, which is one key element, um, what we've done to soil, uh, what we've done to the sea, what we've done to animal species, and how fast these processes are accelerating, we are, you know, like a train that's running away and picking up speed exponentially as it heads towards the buffers. Mm. So it's not a it's not a it's not a situation in which we can afford to think, oh well, you know, you hear you hear people hard to believe that some of them, I'm sure they are intelligent in a certain sort of way, but <laughs> crikey. Around saying things like, oh 
you know, technology will sort it all out. Excuse me, technology uses up resources <laughs> as yeah. fast as it can produce them or faster than we can find them. And in any case, even if that were possible, which it blatantly isn't, um, both because we haven't got the resources and we haven't got time to get machines smart enough to sort these things, we can't rely on a machine way of thinking to sort out our problems. That's where our problem comes from. Mm. And as Einstein said, can't solve a problem with the same kind of thinking that got you into the problem in the first place. Right. So what we need is a totally different idea about how we live, I mean, a change of heart, a change of mind. And it's got to be absolutely radical. And if we don't make it, it'll happen. It'll just be made for us. You know, if we if we act together and do something, we can limit damage. But if we don't, nature will just cruise on. It will all happen and we won't be prepared for it at all. And some awful things that I don't even like to imagine will happen in terms of famine, running out of water, uh, civil war mm -hmm. and you name. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I'm so, go on. We Sorry. Do something. Yeah. yeah. No. 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 I mean, my message. We we can't afford to think. Oh well, you know, uh, tomorrow we need to be making changes today. Each of us as the best that we can. I'm approaching the end of my life, but I'm doing little bits that I can. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to do something, right? I mean, even in the face of what seems to be potentially an extinction level event. I know that's really dramatic, but you know, that's, that's kind of how I feel at this it's point, not, you know, I, I, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, um, we're at this point where, you know, uh, I, I, you know, this is just, just a, this is a bit of self-promotion and I, I apologize, but I recently actually had the really good fortune to, to participate in a TEDx event. And I spoke at a TEDx, a local TEDx, um, organized Ooh. by some friends. Yeah. And I've never done this before. I've never done a public talk before. Um, all I've done is this little podcast here. And, and so to actually get on stage and to present my ideas to an audience was a really new thing for me, but I, I think I did okay. Uh, but I think I scared the shit Ooh. out of everybody, uh, excuse my language, but I think I scared people a bit because ultimately what I did is I came out and I talked about, you know, I said, I'm presenting a terminal diagnosis for the human species. Um, before I unpack that ridiculous statement, you know, let me explain what I do. And I explained my podcast a bit. And then I, I, I listed some things. I said, since 1970, global wildlife populations have declined by over 50%. Insect populations are declining dramatically. Um, the oceans are in dire straits for all these various reasons. Um, the permafrost is thawing in the north. It's causing all the, you know, I was listing all these very, like, very fact, very factual, but very frightening things that are currently happening. And then ultimately what my takeaway, if you want to call it that, was that in the space that we have right now, this is the time for us to not only begin to contemplate where we stand today, but, but what I really ask people to do is to begin the process of grieving. And, I, and, and for me, ultimately what grief can do for us is by grieving for the death of potentially our species, for the death of our planet, for the death of all the all the other creatures on this planet that are currently, you know, on the blunt end of our our little project here on this planet. Um, can we even begin to be in the place to to think about how to adapt to these changes as they come? Um, 
And I mean, that's essentially my talk in a nutshell. I mean, it was like a nine minute talk, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I feel like grief, maybe, maybe you could use a different word for that, but essentially it is this pause. It is mm. this reflection. It is this deeper understanding. Mm. And like with your work in particular, understanding we have two halves of this brain and both are incredibly useful and beneficial, but unfortunately we have emphasized mm. one over the other. And we haven't even taken the time to slow down to reflect upon that fact. And, mm. and mm. so my attraction to your work and to other people's work is to highlight these things and to do, like you say, you're doing your part. You're trying to at least provide another point of view on this subject that mm. is, you know, very influential. I think, I think your work has been very influential for many different people. Um, and I think that is mm. incredibly beautiful because people are really beginning to open up to what your message mm. is and and i'm incredibly grateful that you are doing what you are doing so well thank you and i i'm <laughs> i'm very moved actually by by the response uh which i absolutely never never anticipated in, in a million years but uh, i almost didn't bother writing it because i thought so few people would read it <laughs> and it would be so missed anyway that's all history it there it is but I, I think, you know, grieving, yes. Um, I think a bit of realism is a good idea. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what you don't want is people paralyzed um, by a sense that nothing they do can make any difference. That's mm -hmm. never right, mm -hmm. partly because there are always areas in which you can make a difference. And, for you know, nothing is forever. And so making a difference for yourself and for those that are with you while you're alive on this planet as is important as anything else. Mm -hmm. And we none of us has it in our power to control the future. That's part of the mistaken way we think anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, and something will happen in the end that will be creative because even if it means this civilization comes to a complete stop for, you know, thousands of years, it will give the planet time to, to heal and life will do this amazing thing of new species will emerge and new wonders will come. You know, the planet is not in need of our saving. It's <laughs> we who are in need of being saved. Yeah. The planet will look after itself. So I think a little bit of sober reflection and the iron entering into your soul when you realize, you know, that all the, the kind of glib optimism, which is kind of the constant custard poured over every dish that's served to us, um, <laughs> particularly if I may say so. Uh, sorry, it's not my place to say this, but I do think to an outsider, American culture majors on, you know, it's fine, it's great, everything's yeah. going fine, we've got it under control, we're sorting it out. There's not enough of wait a second, you know. Yeah, no, you're um, you're absolutely on point. I see that so, everywhere so, I go. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I know there, are, there are masses of people in America who are doing fabulously good work, um, and that's a gross generalization I just made. But I think in popular culture, at any rate, the emphasis is on you know um, a good time rather than actually thinking a little deeply about what our responsibilities are you know, what we're doing to the dignity, the beauty, the life, the vitality of the only thing that really matters, which is this wonderful world and our ability to be in it and appreciate it. And those are not popular words these days, you know, dignity and beauty and so on. They're sort of, you know, oh, wow, it's an old hat, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but we're going to 
we're going to find we're going to have to think about these things rather deeply, fairly quickly. Some big ethical issues are right on our doorstep. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. Um, on the other hand, you know, I'm a great believer in, you know, in, in a degree of acceptance, not, not acceptance in a defeatist way, but there's no point in, in not accepting what gifts there are in this world. And they're very great. And, you know, being still and attentive, being peaceful with yourself in a beautiful place and being grateful for what the world gives to you is sorry i'm getting to sound i'm you know forgive me i'm old i'm getting preachy but <laughs> these these are little, little realities that are so important and when you're young you think oh why do they tell me all that stuff you know it, it's all about other people and being nice to them and forgiving them and being grateful to them it's not forgiving and being grateful are about the secret of how to love and enjoy life <laughs> right no I, yeah, I, I anyway we need to heed that that is that is that is through life experience that you you're you're saying that and um you know i i yeah they're not done for other people they're done for our own good <laughs> yeah yeah you know i mean and i think ultimately what you're asking and, and what you're saying is you know you know, to 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 do the work that is that is necessary to kind of highlight these ideas, to bring this attention and this focus on this this very particular way of looking at it. I think it's actually really fulfilling for for the individual. I mean, we tend to think of it like, well, you know, you're sacrificing so much to do this, or you know, it's all about like, what are you getting out of it? But I really think that there's a real richness that comes with with doing this kind of work, the work that you're doing. I mean, it really, it, it fulfills your own life in a way that you maybe never would have even anticipated well, while, while going well, into it. Well, that may be so, but never mind, what, never mind what I do. But I mean, I think that it's my experience and probably everyone's that you're happiest when you're involved in a common project of doing good for people. If you want to be happy, stop focusing on being happy. If you want, <laughs> you know, peace and reward in life, stop focusing on getting the rewards. Just, you know, focus away from yourself as much as you can. We're all terrible. I speak for myself, terribly self-obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> we have this human condition. But, you know, in, in many experiences in life, I have got great fulfillment and happiness out of uh, common pursuits with people um, in, in, in doing things where I can forget about my own miserable um, needs and likes and wants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so there we are. Now I didn't know it was all going to get so preachy, but no, there no, we no, are. No, no, <laughs> I, I, no, I think you provide really, uh, important insights and, you know, I, I, I think it is. Oh, go on. Sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, I think what it is, is that I've moved on a bit from this, this book. I mean, I, I will always think of the master and his emissary as my, my life's work really. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm writing another book at the moment called There Are No Things. Um, and it's a much more sort of philosophical book about a rather topical question. How do we decide that things are true and worthy of being embraced and followed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not a religious book, but it's, it's, it's dealing with those questions. And there are no more important questions. So uh, that's... That's that's where I'm at at the moment. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Well, right, and, and you know that is you're you're in that um, 
the momentum of writing that book. So of course, that's where your mind is going to be focused. And so uh, I totally understand where you uh, are coming from. And do you do you know when uh, so I imagine you're currently writing this book, do you have any projection, any idea of when this book will be published and released for the, the wider public? Well, I've got a contract with Penguin for it, which is long overdue. Um, <laughs> my editor's been um, uh, indulgent of me, um, but I hope to have it finished. I hope to have it finished this year. And so perhaps in a, in a year or a little over after that, um, I, I tend to write rather oversized books. <laughs> um, and I think perhaps I could just write shorter ones. But the thing is that one of my messages is one needs to see how the whole thing hangs together. And I had very good advice from my editor at Yale over the Master and Zemistry because I thought this is a very big book and it could be divided into two or three books. And she said no, because if you do that, what will happen is the scientists will read this one and the arts people will read this one and the philosophers will read that one. But what you need is to bring all together in one place so that we see how the thing hangs together. And, uh, you know, that is essentially right but that's also what i'm i'm facing with the current book yeah well we have uh we've been talking for about an hour um i really thank you for your time and for your your insights for this thing um, i know that you have your website uh ian I, I will definitely provide a link to that site is there any other um okay. upcoming events any like social media anything like that that you would like to to talk about here at this point not, not not really i mean there's just um there's these two films the one by bruce Ferry, parry in which i play a small part called tawai okay. um and then there's this um film which is not yet finished called uh, the divided brain which is specifically that's a feature film about my work um but I, i'm afraid i don't do social media yeah, um that's okay <laughs> I believe a good, um, and uh, but no, and I'm trying not to do events at the moment because I really need to get this right. this book finished. You need to focus on 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 your writing, yeah, of course. Yeah, I can recover some of my life a bit. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I well in spite in 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 light of that, I mean, I then again, I am especially thankful that you're willing to to talk with me. Oftentimes, what I do is I throw out an email to somebody, hey, can we maybe set up an interview? And they're like, oh, I'm like neck deep in writing this. I have deadlines. I'm sorry, you know. And I totally appreciate and understand that. So the fact that you were able to to take the time to speak with me, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for. So, um, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude, but take it!